We've all heard people express, it all happened so fast. I don't know how it happened. For Lawrence Springer, that's exactly how he felt the evening of June 13th, 1949, when he left his beautiful wife, Louise, alone in the car for 10 minutes, only to come back to find that both his wife and his brand new convertible were gone. If you're listening, then you probably know that I'm your host, Catherine, and this is, in fact, Murder and Mediumship. The holidays are fast approaching, and you don't want to get stuck without a gift. If you didn't know, gift certificates are available on my website, catherineannintuitive.com, and if you're a member of Patreon, you can use code PATREONFAM, F-A-M, 1-5, link in the bio, or link in the bio, link in the show notes, of course, for 15% off always during the duration of your membership. Before we go back to this week's case, though, I have to tell you what an incredible time we're having in the intuitively aligned Patreon tier. The psychic circle practice has been so much fun and is still open, though there is a membership cap for this one so we can all practice intimately. If you desire to continue to grow your intuitive gifts or to have a safe judgment-free zone to practice, this is a wonderful place to start. We meet twice per month, and one meeting is in the afternoon while the other is in the evening. This month, we'll meet on December 15th at 12.30 p.m. and the 28th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, what you came here for. Louise and Lawrence Springer owned a few beauty shops in San Francisco, Redwood, Santa Barbara, and Los Gatos in California and sold them before moving to Los Angeles. Both Lawrence and Louise worked for higher-end salons in the same department store, but at different locations. In the evening of June 13th, Lawrence was picking his wife up from the salon around 9 p.m. According to him, he and his wife got got back to their brand new convertible, and she proceeded like she always did to take off her shoes after a long day at work and put her feet into her cozy slippers. She seemed especially drained that day and realized that she had absentmindedly left her glasses back at the salon. So being a good husband, Lawrence told her to stay put and he left to walk from the parking lot on Crenshaw back to the salon across the street to grab them for her. She had settled in and was listening to her favorite show on the radio with the top of the car down and the quiet evening around her as he walked away. The salon that she worked for was in a department store, not freestanding on its own. So on his way back out of the salon, Lawrence stopped to chat with an employee at a stand and purchased a magazine while he chatted. According to him, he was gone for 10 minutes, maybe 15 at most. When he got back outside to the parking lot, his wife and the car were both gone. Lawrence looked around a bit and saw absolutely no sign of her or the car and immediately went to the Los Angeles Police Department. He saw no reason his wife would have just driven away. And to make matters even worse, they had a 21-month-old son at home. So this really didn't add up. LAPD told Lawrence that this wasn't their jurisdiction, though, and that he had to talk to the university division station. Now, this wasn't as simple in the 1940s as it is today to just, like, hang up and call a different number, hang up and call a different number, right? There's a lot more steps to go through then, and I imagine this must have been infuriating for Lawrence. Well, once he spoke to them, they told him that, unfortunately, there was nothing they could do until she had been missing for 24 hours. And having been missing only for about an hour or so, this didn't really seem like an emergency to them. Not knowing what else to do, after begging and pleading for them to look for his wife, Lawrence went home to his son and waited to file a report until the next day. 
Unfortunately, it wouldn't be long before Lawrence found out what exactly had become of his wife that evening, as on June 16, 1949, LAPD received a phone call about a vehicle that had been parked for too long on 38th Street, a quiet residential location, just a few miles away from the parking lot on Crenshaw. This was the same vehicle reported missing by Mr. Springer just a few days prior. According to the caller, the car had been parked there since the evening of June 13th, about an hour after Louise had gone missing. As police arrived to investigate the vehicle, the top had been put up, the windows were down though, and in the back seat of the car was Mrs. Louise Springer, face down, lying underneath the beautician's tarp, the one that was always kept in the back seat of their car. The state of her body was certainly disturbing and contains descriptions of sexual assault, so you may want to skip forward a bit if this is going to be too much for you to hear. There was a clothesline knotted around her neck with two knots under her left ear. Her brown skirt was, tang- was tangled around her hips and twisted around her body. Her yellow suede jacket was pushed up and twisted as well. Her physical body showed no defensive wounds, leading police to believe that she was either taken completely by surprise or she knew her attacker and didn't believe she needed to be afraid when they approached her. Perhaps the most disturbing thing about the condition she was found in was that there was a 14-inch stick, a twig, that was about half an inch thick in diameter, shoved violently into her vaginal cavity. It also appeared that there were bruises around her right temple and the top of her head. Believe it or not, the police drove the vehicle to the morgue with Mrs. Springer still in the back seat. And this was 1949 after all, but it still makes me just cringe at the idea of these officers driving the vehicle with her body still in it. Once at the morgue, though, Dr. Frederick Newbar performed her autopsy, and this is the same man who performed the Black Dahlia's autopsy, and he was able to determine that the bruising on her head and temple were actually not bruises, but post-mortem tissue changes. Other sources do indicate, though, that she was struck on the head with enough force to knock her unconscious. Her body was in too advanced of a state of decomposition to be able to tell if she'd been strangled before or after her sexual assault. Dr. Newbar attempted to use a test that was new at the time, the acid phosphate test, to determine if there was any semen on her body, but the test was inconclusive, again because of her state of decomposition. With them being so new to the LA area and having sold all of their shops before moving there, rumors flew around why someone would have wanted to kill Louise, like infidelity maybe. Their housekeeper and nanny, Elizabeth Thompson, told the authorities that they really seemed like a happily married couple with a beautiful home and family. She knew of no enemies of either of theirs. And one thing did stick out to her, though, that she thought worthy of mention to the police. A few months prior to Louise's murder, Elizabeth had received a call while at the Springer home that was evidently lewd in nature. The call came in at a time of day Louise wasn't typically home. And they had asked to speak to her a number of times, and when Elizabeth insisted she wasn't there, they began to make lewd propositions to her, and she ultimately hung up. Louise had received another one of these calls from a male while at work, who hung up after asking for her. It wasn't just Louise receiving these phone calls either, as Lawrence had received six of these phone calls in six days from an unknown male. These calls were made to Lawrence's place of employment, but allegedly some of them were received at home too. It's not known whether or not this was the same person Elizabeth had been in contact with when she answered one of the calls, but I mean, come on, how many strange men are out there calling each of these people 
in this couple, it doesn't really make sense that it would be someone else, right? The information on the calls to Lawrence came from a retired LAPD detective and licensed private investigator, Steve Hodel. Now, some of you who are obsessed with true crime are going, Steve Hodel, what does he have to do with this? You may recognize the name if you're familiar with the Black Dahlia case. To be brief, Elizabeth Short, a beautiful woman, was found severed in two just two years prior, a few blocks from where Louise had been taken. Now, Steve Hodel believes that his father, Dr. George Hodel, was responsible for the death of the Black Dahlia, and he's written a book about it. In fact, I think he's written at this point multiple books, but the one I'm referencing is Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for Murder. There's also a podcast called The Root of Evil, which tells the story of the Hodel family and is hosted by George Hodel's great-granddaughters. I have not read Steve Hodel's book, but I have listened to the podcast, and not only is it very well done, I really thoroughly enjoyed the two women who host it, but it does feel fairly convincing that he could have been responsible for it, although... I believe if you've listened to my Black Dahlia episode, I don't believe it was actually him who did it. I can see how it would be convincing, though. All of the evidence is circumstantial. However, all of this to say that Steve Hodel believes that the murder of Louis Springer is tied to the murder of Elizabeth Short. I'll, of course, link his site in the show notes, but he goes on to say that she was found only three blocks from where Elizabeth Short was found and identifies her as another one of the 1940s lone woman murders, as there were a good number of women who found themselves alone and murdered and left on the streets of LA, many of which I believe, but don't quote me on this, he thinks that his father is also connected to. The detective assigned to Louise Springer's case was Detective Harry Hansen, who was also assigned to Elizabeth Short's murder. He believes the two were connected as well. The problem with this is only that at the time, the LAPD had a tendency to jump fairly quickly to nearly any murder being related to a serial killer, though the actual term serial killer wouldn't be coined until 1974. They often thought that these were all the same person. Witnesses living in the neighborhood of 38th Street said that they had seen a man in the Springer's car seem to adjust something in the back seat where Louise was found days later. Some claimed that this person was in a military uniform and that he had black curly hair. Now, keep in mind, the lighting couldn't have been all too great around 9, 9.30 at night. But even so, it's summertime, so it's not pitch black either. A man who lived only about 50 yards from where her body was found said that he had seen a man with black hair wearing a gray uniform with a naval cap on. And others also agreed that whoever it was leaving her car had black or dark curly hair. Interestingly enough, during the commissioning of the crime, the police were literally yards away. According to witnesses, the Springer's car was heading east down 38th Street and the driver swerved really suddenly to park on the south curb as a teenage driver was being pulled over by an officer right nearby. While the officers lectured the teenage driver on a traffic infraction, the driver of the stolen vehicle sat motionless, slouched down in the front of the car. After the police drove away, the man in the Springer's car reached toward the back seat of the car, then exited and walked away. To support Steve Hodel's theory, George Hodel had black curly hair. Some theorized that the couple had moved to the area to start fresh after an affair, selling off their shops, going where no one knew them. They had, after all, only been in the area for about six months at the time. They had also recently listed their eight-bedroom home and hosted an open house, which is strange to me, too, because if they'd only been there for six months, unless they already owned that property longer, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that's long enough to be living in a place before selling it. Was it possible someone strange came through the open house? 
That remains unknown, but authorities were able to eliminate the lewd phone calls as being connected to her murder, which honestly, I hope that avenue was really thoroughly investigated and not just given up on it and deemed unrelated because it doesn't seem like something that would, I mean, how could that be unrelated? I mean, maybe, maybe it is. I mean, things like that can happen. I want to say coincidentally, but I don't believe in coincidences. However, it just seems odd to me that two really like that strange of a thing would be going on and then the wife is murdered. They were actually, the LAPD, though, had a reputation at the time for doing shoddy police work and having a high number of unsolved cases. They were actually under investigation for this at the time. Based on witness testimony and the autopsy, police believe that Louise had been murdered within an hour of her disappearance. An hour. And the time that her husband was going absolutely crazy trying to get law enforcement to pay attention to him. She had been taken and killed. So had they listened, had they been paying more attention, who knows how this could have ended differently. But who was responsible? Was it George Hodel? Steve Hodel believes that George was responsible for a lot more murders than just the Black Dahlia. And the papers at the time went so far as to say that the tree branch or twig was used to stamp this crime as the same category of the Black Dahlia. I don't believe that the same person killed Elizabeth Short and Louise Springer, though. I just, I truly don't. It doesn't click for me in that way. I don't feel intuitively that's what happened. As the investigation went on, Lawrence and his young son packed back up and moved to Northern California, where they were originally from. Two arrests were made in relation to the murder. Leon Russell, a car washer at a service station near the lot she was taken from, though he ultimately was cleared. And then Claude Cox, who was arrested on, he was an unemployed Navy veteran who had been previously arrested on a morals complaint for trying to, quote, molest a young woman, Marion Brown. Evidently, she had gone back to his room with him and things went a little too far. And she told the authorities that he molested her. He told the, she told the authorities that he molested her and he told the authorities that he got a quote bit friendly with her, but it wasn't anything more than that. Let me roll my eyes at this right now before moving on. Just a little friendly means he pushed her far past what she was comfortable with. And when she said no, he pushed back. And when she went to the authorities, he covered himself. Cox had also been arrested after Louise's death. In 1949, he walked up behind 35-year-old Mrs. Geneva Cowan on Hollywood Boulevard and told her that he was going to kill her. She ran away and only got away from him because he grabbed her coat and it came off of her when he grabbed it and she was able to pull away from him and run off to safety. Now, I'm not sure why he was cleared of Louise Springer's murder, but he was never really formally charged with it. And honestly, he just sounds like such a good suspect. However, LAPD was doing their job, right? Could Lawrence have been responsible? Maybe she never asked for him to fetch her glasses, but he had in fact made all of that up and then killed her, then abandoned his own vehicle. Maybe he stopped in the store to grab a magazine just to cover his own tracks and give himself an alibi. I'm not saying that's what happened, but it's possible, right? Absolutely no leads panned out, and here we are, 73 years later, with no answers outside of Steve Hodel's certainty that his father must have been involved. I err on the side of a random crime here. Someone who happened to be walking by as her husband exited the car, jumped in, did what he did, moved to the vehicle after knocking her unconscious, and did what he did and went off. With no one any the wiser. I do also believe that this person was responsible for various other deaths in the area, but that because the LAPD wasn't doing their jobs at the time, he got away with it. 
In January of 1950, just six months later, the LAPD was condemned by a Los Angeles County grand jury for failure to solve many murders and disappearances of unknown women. According to an L.A. newspaper printed on January 12, 1950, the final report of the grand jury showed crime, corruption, and gangsterism, with law enforcement officers accepting bribes and payoffs to cover up violations of the law. Will it be solved? I really doubt it with this one. But with DNA solving multitudes of crimes that have previously been unsolvable, who really knows? What do you guys think? Let me know in the comments on the reel for today's episode right on Instagram. Thanks for being here with me, friends, and come back Thursday for an extra special episode of Coffee and Conjurings.